Good morning, West Bulls. How are you doing? Good. Last Sunday of 2012. It's hard to believe. Well, hey, this morning I've got to share something um, embarrassing about me with you guys so that you guys can feel better about yourselves and I can feel worse about myself. So two weeks ago, our one-year-old totally knocked me off my feet. I mean, literally took my legs right out from underneath me. And um, that's saying something because I'm a man (laughs) and I, I wrestled in high school. But she had me on the ground two weeks ago, and I'll explain. We have two daughters. A lot of you know them. Lainey is five years old, and True, that you see on the screen here, she is one year old. And about a month ago, um, True decided to try to climb out of her crib. And you know how that ended. She landed on her arm, and she broke her arm right here. But they said kids are just like a magician at getting out of casts if they only cast it to here. So they had to go all the way around her elbow, and you see it there, that pink cast. And so... For three weeks, she's just walking around, and this arm is flailing around. And it's so funny because that's the injured arm, but when a cast is on it, it's invincible. I mean, she's running into walls, and she's hitting the brick on our house, and she's fine. Um, so anyhow, Kara, one, one morning a couple weeks ago, my wife, she had to run errands, and Lainey was at school at kindergarten, and so I had a morning with True. It was Daddy and True. So we're coloring in the living room. And our phone rang. And so I got up to answer the phone. And as I'm finishing that conversation, the doorbell rings. And whenever our doorbell rings, it's usually one of three people. It's a neighbor, it's a friend, or it's somebody selling Girl Scout cookies. Because we have this sign on our door and it says, no solicitors, unless you're selling Girl Scout cookies. So I open the door and it's not a neighbor and it's not a friend, but it's this guy. And he's got the same line that everybody who comes to our door has. He says, well, I'm here to sell you some Girl Scout cookies. And I'm like, no, you're not, because you're a dude. And so (laughs) I tell him no thanks, and I shut the door. And as soon as I turn around, True is jumping up and down excited, and she's pointing in the living room, and she's got a marker in her hand. So my heart starts racing a little bit, and I run to the living room. And what I found when I got there was actually a very impressive drawing for a one-year-old. But the problem is this drawing was on our couch cushion. And so I'm starting to panic because I don't want my wife to see this and I want her to think I do a good job when she's out running errands. And so I'm scrubbing at it with a washcloth and I see True starting to draw on another cushion. And so just instinct, I ripped this marker out of her hand. And how do you think that went? I mean, anytime you rip something out of a one-year-old's hand, they get upset. And so she is crying and screaming and she's upset. And uh, I thought, well, I'll deal with that in a minute. i got to get this marker out. And suddenly I see this movement out of the corner of my eye, and I turn, and I get this face full of pink cast. And if you've ever been hit with a cast, it does not feel good, does it? And that pink cast you see right there on the screen, it stopped being this cute little pink cast in that moment. And it turned into this torture device. And it was forged and fashioned and molded in the fires of Mordor, for you Lord of the Rings fans. And honestly, it was True's like chosen instrument of judgment and destruction on my face. And so now I've got a bloody nose, and she's screaming and crying, and there's marker on the couch, and I'm just so mad at myself. Because I'm thinking if I hadn't answered the phone, and if I hadn't answered the door, well then the couch would be fine, and True would be fine, and I would be fine. But I was mad at myself, and I'm sitting here thinking, I am lousy. 
because I got completely distracted from what was really important in that moment. And that was spending time with my daughter. Now, I'm sure I'm the only one in here who goes through this, right? No. We all go through it. We all get distracted from what's important. And the distractions in our lives, they show up in all kinds of forms and at all kinds of times and in all kinds of areas, don't they? And, and the proof of that is on the screen, those text messages that you guys sent during the announcements. You're going to see some of them here in a minute. The proof of that is when you look at what distracts us. I mean, it's things, it's opinions, it's circumstances going on in our lives. You know, maybe it's other people. All kinds of stuff that distracts us from what's really important in our lives. And the thing about a distraction is this. It deceives us. Because when a distraction shows up in our lives, isn't it true that we feel like that distraction is the most important thing in life at that moment, don't we? Case in point, pay attention. Next time you're talking to somebody and they get a text message and you're talking to them and they're nodding their head and then they get this message and they pull out the cell phone and maybe they're looking at it, but if they're polite, they're still nodding their head, but they're not listening to you anymore. Because the most important thing in the world is to read that text message and respond to it. And usually you know it doesn't say anything important, right? It says LOL, TTYL, smiley face, ha ha. You know, but nothing really that important. But it feels important. Now for me, it's not text messages. Let me show you what it is for me that distracts me. Right here. <laughs> Oreos. And these things have a way of showing up in my life whenever I have made a decision to do something that's probably important for all of us, and that's to eat a little better. But whenever I've made a decision to do that, these things somehow show up in my life. And the, it's actually not these. These are regular Oreos. Actually, I call these diet Oreos. <laughs> we all know the real Oreo is the double stuff Oreo. I mean, if you're going to amen anything this morning, amen to that. All right? But to me, the most important thing in the world when these show up in my life is to eat them and eat them all. Because I know if I don't eat them, someone else is going to eat them. And it's important to me that I'm the one who eats them. And I don't know if you know this, but this year, 2012, this is actually the most important year, the most important time in history to have to eat Oreos. Because they have included a message on their package for us. Listen to this. For our 100th birthday, Oreo's here to remind you and your family that there's a kid inside each and every one of us who deserves to be set free every now and then. I mean, it's like somebody at Nabisco wrote this for me. And then they go on, listen to this. It's time to slow down. It's time to play. It's time to get back to that carefree feeling of childhood. And I read that and I go, yeah. That is important. I need to release the child from within me. And that did not sound right, but you know exactly what I'm saying, all right? But for me, it's Oreos, and we all have distractions. You know, we get in front of Facebook, and there's nothing more important. Stuff is going on in our lives. And instead of being focused on one or two things, we have ten things that feel like the most important thing, right? All at once. Our opinions feel like the most important thing. What we like or what we don't like or what we think things should be like or shouldn't be like. 
And those feel like the most important thing, don't they? Or other people. Some of, some of you probably experienced this this last week. If you had relatives come in from out of town. You know, there's that one relative that you're like, oh, just stay home. Just stay home. Because you distract me. And I can't focus on anything because they drive you crazy. Now, isn't it true that when we let distractions into our lives, we pay a price too, don't we? And that price comes in the form of time. It comes in the form of energy. And it comes in the form of attention that we could have been giving something so much more important. And ultimately what we lose out on when we let distractions into our life, what we lose out on is something so much more important. And that thing has the power to affect who we are as people. And that thing has the power to influence how we treat other people. And that thing has the power to direct what our focus is everywhere we go. When we go to work, when we're at home, when we go to school, when we come to church. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what that thing is. And the reason we're able to talk about it is because we are not the first people to struggle with distractions in life. There was a group of people 2,000 years ago who had very similar distractions to what you have and what I have today. And it got so bad that they actually had a messenger, somebody who came along and reminded them of what that important thing is that they were blind to while they were being distracted. And that messenger's name is a guy named Paul. And Paul was a man who, when he became a Christian, he could not stay put. I mean, he had to go share this message of Jesus that he had received. And so what Paul did is he would go to different cities and he would find people there and he would just start sharing the message of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And he's just sharing this everywhere he goes. Well, what happened is people started hearing this and they said, I want to follow Jesus. And they would believe in Jesus as their savior. And then they'd be baptized. And a group of these people would form and what would happen is they would form a church. And so everywhere Paul went, you saw this happening. Churches would spring up everywhere. And then he'd move on to the next place. But the thing about Paul is he never forgot about the places he had stopped. He never forgot about the churches that, that, he, that were, had sprung up after he visited. And so he would write them letters, sometimes two or three or four years later. And sometimes the purpose of the letter was to encourage. Sometimes the purpose of the letter was to teach. And sometimes the purpose of the letter was to address issues in the church. And these letters, some of them we have with us today because they help make up the New Testament of what is in our Bible. And we're going to look at one of those letters this morning. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, Paul had been getting reports about some issues and some distractions going on in this church in a town called Corinth in Greece. And what he had been told is that there was some fighting going on, and then there was immaturity on top of that, that they just couldn't settle things the way people who followed Christ should settle them. And you had marriage issues, and there were family issues, and there were home issues. And you even had lawsuits among the people at the church. The people who were in the same church together were taking each other to court and suing one another. 
And then they had this issue of, they, there, was a, there was an issue they had, they were questioning the resurrection of the dead. Well, to Paul, I mean, this was a big deal. Because the very foundation of the message he brought to them that they believed was that Jesus died for their sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And so he, he's going to address this issue in the, in the part we look at today. He's already addressed the other issues, the other distractions this church had. But he's going to address this issue, the resurrection of the dead. Because he's saying, this is foundational. I mean, if the resurrection of the dead doesn't happen, well then... Your faith is worthless. And so, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Here we go. It'll be on screen if you don't have your Bible. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And so he's reminding them again, remember what you first believed? This issue, this distraction in your church right now affects that. And so he, he's bringing them back to what they originally believed. And then he goes on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In that phrase, according to the scriptures, is actually really big because Paul's saying, look, I will show you that it's true. The scriptures said this would happen long before it ever happened. And it happened. And then with that, he launches into his second argument for why the resurrection of the dead is a real thing. He says this, and then he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Peter, one of the disciples. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12, the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See, that's important because Paul's saying, look, this isn't just something that one or two people dreamed up. Over 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so there are eyewitnesses that if you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. Some of them are still alive. And then he goes on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And he uses that term abnormally born because as we find out in a minute, Paul did not really have the same path to becoming an apostle that the others did. Paul didn't have the same path. And then Paul does something here. It's like he, he backs off of addressing this specific distraction, this issue going on in Corinth. And he backs off and he, he takes a moment to remind them of what that important thing is that they forgot. In the middle of all their distractions, that there's something important you've forgotten. And he reminds you and I of what that important thing is as well. And he uses his own life to do it. Look at this. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted the church of God. If you know anything about Paul's life, you know there is a lot behind that statement. Paul persecuted the church of God. See, 
Paul wasn't always the Paul that we see here. Paul didn't always travel around and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. See, before Paul was Paul, Paul went by his Hebrew name, Saul. And Saul was not a good man, at least from what we read. Because see, Saul was a very devout, very zealous Jew, and he believed what he believed very intensely. In fact, when, when one of the early followers of Jesus, a guy named Stephen, he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the governing council at that time, and they brought these charges against Stephen, and he's defending himself and he's explaining, and at one point he got the Sanhedrin so riled up, he got everybody in the room so mad that they dragged him outside and stoned him to death. And in the book of Acts, we read that Saul was there giving approval to his death. See, to Saul, this movement of Christianity, it was a threat. It was a threat to what he believed. And he truly believed that God wanted this movement erased from the face of the earth. And so he committed himself to helping that happen. As we read in the book of Acts, it says, Saul continued to breathe out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And then it got to the point where he would go door to door and he would drag men and women out of their homes and put them in chains and throw them in prison for following Jesus Christ. And then it got to the point where he went to the high priests because he had heard some Christians had scattered to Damascus, this other town. And it got so bad that he went to the high priests and he, he asked for permission to go there and arrest them and drag them back and throw them in prison. And they said, yeah, go ahead. Now, here's what you have to know about Damascus. From where Paul was, at that, or Saul was at that time, Damascus was a 150-mile trip. One way. And then he'd come back. So we're looking at 300 miles round trip. And what we get here is a picture of how intensely Saul wanted to persecute the church. Because this was not 2012, where Saul just hopped in his, his Honda Accord and he drove to Damascus and put people in the trunk and just drove back with them. No, this was, this was long before that. So he had to make the trip by foot, or maybe on horseback, or on a camel. But he was willing to do that because he was so zealous for what he believed. Well, on the way to Damascus, something happened. See, so they're on the way to Damascus, him and his companions, and there's this bright light that blinds Saul. And he hears this voice, and this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you have to wonder what Saul was thinking. Persecuting me? I mean, I'm persecuting Christians. I'm persecuting the church. I'm persecuting this movement that is a threat to everything I believe. And he's confused. And so he says out loud, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. In other words, Saul, what you do to those who follow me, you do to me. And it's at this point in the story where if you're like me, if you were alive at that time and you saw all this going on, you're hoping that God brings somebody along to give Paul or Saul what he deserves. Maybe kick him in the teeth. The first time I read this, I remember being so upset because I didn't know how it ended. I remember being so upset 
that somebody could actually do this to people. But what we find out is that God had something else in mind. And Jesus had something more important in mind. And look what happens next. Jesus, he sends Saul to Damascus. And he's told a man in Damascus named Ananias to watch for this guy Saul. And you're going to take care of him. And when Saul gets to Damascus, here's what happens. Instead of getting what he deserves, well, he gets his eyesight back. Instead of getting what he deserves, Ananias feeds him. Instead of getting what he deserves, he gets baptized. And everything changes. See, what Saul received in Damascus was mercy. Mercy, not punishment, not retribution, not revenge. Mercy. I mean, isn't that incredible? That here's this man who had said, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, to the followers of Jesus. And here he is getting a big, huge, I love you, from Jesus himself. And it's from that event that Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth here. It's from that moment that he's reminding them of something they've forgotten in the middle of all their distractions. It's from that event that he reminds you and I of something very important that we lose sight of when distractions get into our lives. And he names it in verse 10. Look at this, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace. Do you know what Paul's message is here? We have received incredible grace. And I say we because Paul is not a special case. He's not a special case. If you look at who Jesus appeared to, nobody deserved it. I mean, Peter denied him three times, remember? The disciples that he appeared to scattered when he needed them most. And Paul persecuted the church of God. Nobody deserves it. Not you, not me. And yet God has given us incredible grace in the form of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a Savior who died for our sins, who was buried, and who rose from the dead. That is God's incredible grace. But you know what? He doesn't stop there. Because we continue to see his grace, don't we? Because he puts a roof over our heads, and he gives us food to eat, and people to fellowship with, and we live in the United States of America where we have the freedom to live out our faith without being persecuted for it, like the early believers did. And he gives us a church that, to be honest, and George has, Pastor George has said this a few times, we probably shouldn't be here, should we? But we're here. By God's grace, we are what we are. We're here. See, God's grace is everywhere in our lives. Two weeks ago, some of you may have heard about this in the news. In Plano, Texas, a police officer pulled over a man who had expired registration on his car. And he pulled the man over and he walked up to the driver's window and he said, are you aware I pulled you over because you have expired registration? And the man said, yeah. But right now, it's pay for my registration or it's pay for food for my family because things are that tight. 
and the police officer walked back to his car and he wrote out a ticket and folded it up and he brings it back to the driver and goes on his way. Well, that driver unfolds the ticket and not only is there a ticket for expired registration, but there's a $100 bill to pay the ticket. I mean, isn't that what God does in our lives? We get confronted with the truth of how we've offended him. And then he looks at us and says, you know what? I'll pay it though. I'll pay it. I'll give you my son. I'll give you my son who died for your offenses. And he can overcome that. He can overcome the offenses, the issues, the distractions. That's what God does. Now here's what I love about Paul is he doesn't leave it there. Because look at the second part of verse 10. He just said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then look what he says next. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you know what the effect of grace in Paul's life was? Here was this man who had gone from persecuting Christians to becoming one of them. Here was a man who was willing to go 300 miles to squash the message of Christ. And you know what he did? After he received incredible grace, he went on these missionary journeys. And if you add up the distance he went on those missionary journeys, it totals over 10,000 miles. In a day and age where there were no cars, no easy way to get anywhere. 10,000 miles. A man who's willing to go 300 miles to squash the message of Christ ends up going 10,000 miles or more to spread the message of Jesus Christ. What could cause such an incredible shift? What could cause such an incredible effect? Incredible grace. That's what causes that, incredible grace. And so the takeaway from what Paul's saying here and the takeaway from Paul's life really is this, that incredible grace should produce an incredible response. Incredible grace should produce an incredible response. See, the truth is we don't have time for distractions. We don't. The things that we get in our lives and the circumstances and the opinions and, uh, and what bugs us about other people, we don't have time for distractions. We don't. And so the question this morning is this, is what is our response going to be? What is our response going to be to the incredible grace that we've been given? You know, maybe you're here and you're new and you're not a Christian, but somebody, somebody dragged you here this morning and you decided to come and you feel like God, your heart's pounding and he's speaking to you. That's not me. That is God's grace pursuing you. Maybe your response is to finally open the door to that grace. You know, or maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years and years. Here's what I'd like all of us to do this morning, whether you're new or you've been a Christian for years. We have a homework assignment. For the next seven days, there's a time limit, seven days. 
I want you to think of one person in your life. One person that you can give grace to. And this has to be a person who doesn't deserve it. They haven't earned the right for you to do anything for them. They can't repay you because that's one of the big truths about grace is that you can't repay it. All you can do is respond to it. And so what is our response going to be? That person that popped into your mind just now, what are you going to do for them? Without expecting repayment, what can you do for them? How can you show grace to somebody? Because something happens when you show grace to someone. What happens is you get a reminder of the incredible grace that you've been given. But you also respond in an incredible way to the incredible grace you've been given. Incredible grace should produce an incredible response. You know, at the beginning of this, this sermon, I mentioned that our one-year-old totally took me off my feet. And I was down on the ground and my nose bleeding, but that's not what knocked me off my feet. What knocked me off my feet was that here was Marker on the couch, and True is crying, and I've got a bloody nose, and I'm thinking, I am a lousy dad, because I just got so distracted I got so distracted from what was really important. I mean, I'm lousy. And True, with these big tears in her eyes and the quivery lip, climbs up on the couch and sits next to me and lays her head on my shoulder. Isn't that what God does? In the middle of us thinking that we are lousy and we don't deserve anything, isn't that what God does? He reminds us that he has given us incredible grace. And I believe that that is a picture for this church. That is a picture for West Bowles Community Church. This place can be filled up on Sundays. It can be filled up throughout the week whenever we're doing stuff here. Because we've gone out recognizing that we've been given incredible grace. And you know what? People are drawn to incredible grace. When you go out and respond to incredible grace, people are drawn to that. This can be a church in which we remind the world in the middle of all the distractions that we have received incredible grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who is so patient with us. Over and over, we let the distractions in and they take over. And yet, you continue to give us something that we don't deserve, your grace. And so in the middle of those distractions, Father, will you just remind us, like Paul reminded those at Corinth, of this important thing in our lives, more important than any distraction, your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.